Hello and welcome to another Stellar Women episode. Mary and Mila have left relativity, but we couldn't not use this amazing conversation they had with Bishu Solomon Gurma. During their talk, Bishu discusses the pressure that comes with being a double minority in tech, the importance of catering leadership styles to meet different needs, and giving yourself grace throughout it all. Okay, so thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we have so much that we want to chat with you, so I'm going to dive right into questions. So you moved from Canada to England for a career opportunity. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I spent about 10 months in London for a summer internship to begin and then followed up by a semester abroad as part of an exchange program while I was in law school and I fell in love with the city and I kind of made it known to anyone who asked or even those who didn't that I would love to live and work in London one day and I told that to my managers at different companies that I worked with and I was fortunate enough that in one of my organizations my manager knew that an opportunity had come up inside the company in London and he asked if I would be interested in putting myself forward. So I immediately did. I put my hand up and I was part of a process that was involved in terms of interviewing for the position and, and I got the job. And after I got the job, I think it took me about six weeks to pack up my life, get a visa in order and make the move to London. It was pretty fast because I, I knew I wanted to do it. So I was really excited that I got the opportunity in my career to, to make a move from Toronto to London. And in that organization, I got the chance to travel all across Europe, working with customers in multiple countries countries and also teams. So I had to really engage with different business cultures, both from a leadership perspective and then getting to know customers. And because this is legal tech at the end of the day, also understanding the different legal jurisdictions as well. So it really broadened my horizons and my skill sets. And now in my current role, I'm more focused on the UK market in particular, but I have customers all over the UK. So I'm getting to expand my experience in a whole new way, focusing in, in England and Wales and a little bit of Scotland for the moment, but certainly a lot of travel and a lot of fun as well. Cool. And, and so you're still over there in London, right? I'm still based in London. Yeah, it's been four years now. It's actually four years a week ago. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I am um, similar-ish. I studied abroad during my bachelor's degree from Australia in Texas. And then I was like, oh, I want to work in America one day. And then cinema types thing. When I graduated, I moved on over to Chicago. So it's, it's funny how you kind of put that out there into the world. And sometimes if people just happen to listen at the right time, you just keep repeating the message and, and the opportunity comes along. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So what's been some of your favorite, almost unexpected favorite places um, that you've traveled to or been to while you've been in Europe? So I've been lucky enough to travel to many, many countries. So when I was thinking about this question, I kind of really did ask myself which one was the surprising one and the top of the list. And in terms of memories and recall, what jumps out at me are this the scenery, the hills, the rolling landscape that I got to, to experience on a visit to Isle of Skye in Scotland. And it was just, it was surprising because obviously there's many places you can go to in Europe and there's food, there's culture, there, there's history. But what was most impactful was just green serene landscape, very cold. It was 15 degrees Celsius in August. I don't know what that converts to in Fahrenheit because Canadians and Brits do use uh, Celsius, um, but it was cold enough and I still really loved it. It was just the cleanest air I think I've ever experienced. It was really refreshing um, and just really, really beautiful. And obviously the people were friendly too. So I got to try some good whiskey along the way. <laughs> uh, Isla Sky is known for that, but just lovely hikes and scenery. I did a quick Google conversion. 15 degrees Celsius is 59 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. 
in August. It's like, like summer weather. What do you mean that's cold? That's cold. It's oh cold. God. Mary's Mary's a Chicagoan and she doesn't has this warped understanding of what is cold and what is not. That's cold. People wear shorts and a tank top. Well, summer's seventies and up. It's gotta be uh-huh. like your low twenties at least. Yeah, you gotta be like twenty-five and over. Yeah. Anything well, below is cold. All right. Well, it's a big debate here. <laughs> so Vishu, you're at Access Legal now, that's correct. Yes. And you yes. are running customer success. So yes. as a leader, how would you describe your leadership style? What kind of constitutes what makes you you? So I think my leadership style is to be adaptable to the situation at hand and to really understand what the team needs, what my customers need and what leadership style I need to tap into in that moment to make sure that I'm providing the kind of support I need to provide. So if I had to boil it down to one word, I don't even think this is an official leadership style, but it's adaptive. I'll go with that. But I do have a few examples of certain styles that I draw upon and and when I tend to use them. So sometimes I do tend to adopt a bit more of a direct and authoritative style. And I use that when I need to kind of set direction around process and transformation, especially when there's some lack of definition, I want to come together and bring structure to the team. But this style, it's not about just telling people exactly what they need to do. I know authoritative sounds like that, but that's actually very autocratic. (laughs) An authoritative, authoritative style really does involve setting a vision and clear expectations, but you also do have to allow your team to have the flexibility in coming up with the method in which they use to kind of achieve the goals that you're setting out. It's about creating the direction and that vision and then giving people some room to actually execute on it. Other times I do tend to have a bit more of a democratic style and or participative style. And that's a lot of brainstorming and coming up with ideas together and getting agreement and alignment on what we want to do in terms of creating a path forward. This can be really helpful when you want to build kind of engagement and collaboration amongst the team, but it really has to be used carefully because you can't make every single decision <laughs> by vote <laughs> because that, that could take a long time, right? So you have to have some room to breathe and some flexibility and when to adopt that. But I think it can be really meaningful in getting people really energized and bought in if they have a say in the direction that you're going and they're able to, to kind of put their vote and their ideas forward. I'd also say that there are some times when I use a bit more creativity and I use a coaching method as well. I tend to ask a lot of questions of people while I want them to come up with their own ideas and problem solve kind of independently. I'm going to ask a lot of questions that sometimes are leading questions, but they're mostly open-ended and they just, they're aimed at getting to the, why do you think that that's a recommendation that needs to be followed? Or why do you think the customer wanted us to proceed in this particular way and getting to the, the, the root of what needs to actually happen. And sometimes when you just go with finding a solution, for people, they're not going to learn really, right? So in terms of leadership, I want people to learn and kind of find things out for themselves, but it's my job to kind of coach and guide them towards getting there. So really trying to be flexible and adaptable and coming up with, with the right approach for the solution. I also have a couple of other notes on leadership that I do want to share. And there's there's some lessons that I've learned and I, I want to note that I'm still learning myself. I don't think any leader can tell you that they have it all figured out. (laughs) I would love to find someone who does. Um, But in a way, I never want to be the person that says I've got it all figured out. I want to continuously learn and evolve. So what I've learned is that you constantly do need to assess the situation and adjust your approach. 
You don't want to cause confusion because constant change can really lead to uncertainty and that can that can cause some destabilization in the team. So while you're kind of innovating and working towards continuous improvement in a way that's constant change, but it has to be with a consistent focus and that clear vision in mind. So you have to set clear goals and you want to come up with a purpose for your team. Purpose is actually an exercise that I'm going through with my division, my organization at the moment and really brainstorming what are we trying to accomplish, but not just what, why are we trying to accomplish that? And, and it's about setting that underlying reason that we come to work every day. So when you have those foundations that are really there, then people really come together and, and you don't often have to tell people exactly what to do. When there's a problem, they know how to go about fixing it because they, they know the why and what outcome they need to achieve. So to close on, on the leadership front, it really is about continuing to learn from others. Um, I ask my team for feedback. Seeking feedback is also really important. And I want to reiterate in, in this, admitting that I don't know everything isn't about kind of being modest or insecure or this feeling of having imposter syndrome, I think sometimes it gets confused for that. It's about being really honest with yourself and knowing that you're going to continuously evolve yourself. And if you expect that out of others, you need to, you need to expect that within your own, your own personal development as well. I love that. No matter where you are in your career, whether you're just starting or, you know, about to retire, you should always be learning and growing. You know, yeah. if, if you have it all figured out, life would be pretty boring. So I really like that. And Misha, when we chatted in a previous conversation, we talked about the double burden that underrepresented groups often face when it comes to leadership, right? And we're in an industry, legal and tech, where representation is needed on a lot of fronts. Yeah. So you're a Black woman in a legal and tech. And tell us, have you ever faced that double burden? What's that been like? Um, just tell us a little bit about your story. So the answer is yes, <laughs> and to, to tell you why I kind of have to start at the beginning. So growing up, I was used to being the only Black girl in the class when I was a student or one of less than a handful of Black students. I was born in Ethiopia, but I immigrated to Singapore at a very young age. And in, in that population, I was definitely one of the only uh, Black students in my school, but I soon moved to Canada. I moved to Canada about four years later. And even there, when there was a bit more diversity and representation, I was just among once uh, I was always among just a handful of folks. So I found myself early in life being part of an underrepresented population. And then when I moved into the professional space, I continued to be that individual in a group, feeling a bit underrepresented and being very conscious of where my differences could be potentially visible amongst others. And I had some experience around um, potential biases that I saw from other people coming to light. And it was always just an education opportunity to understand where people were coming from and what I could do around relationship building to find those commonalities and really build connections with, with individuals. But as I moved kind of more senior into my career, I realized that I wanted to get more involved and have a very proactive approach to it rather than reacting to situations. I found myself early on um, managing teams of people that were really diverse, but this was in a, in a population of document reviewers where a lot of it's really contingent work and I could see a lot of diversity and representation. But then when I looked at the leadership teams, that diversity wasn't necessarily reflected. And I wanted to be part of the solution of making sure that there were opportunities and a pathway to leadership and to more secure employment for individuals who wanted it. And by putting myself out there, I wanted to represent what the art of the possible was 
really, um, not just necessarily for Black women, but also for Black men and for other underrepresented groups that may need to see someone who looks like them or who has a similar experience, whether it's my immigrant experience that people could relate to. I just wanted to be mindful of where I could represent a group of people that were feeling underrepresented. But being part of a group of underrepresented people comes with a lot of pressure. There's external pressure, and some of that external pressure is this expectation to perform at a really high level to overcome any potential unconscious or conscious biases that we have experienced throughout our careers. And then there's an internal pressure as well to ensure that you continue to perform at that high level. So you're setting a positive example and there's this very deep understanding that because you're representing other people, how you succeed could create the pathway for other people's success. And then if you don't succeed, for example, what impact and reflection may that have? And that's that's a lot to put on yourself. That's a big burden. And I know that for some, it's something that we kind of strongly internalize and have to consciously work on because of course, we're not representing an entire population. We're representing ourselves. But there's a, a potential, especially if you're kind of used to being a high performer, to put that burden upon yourself. And I'm really mindful of, of how I do that and how I coach other people who want to play a role in um, giving opportunity to others as well to not necessarily put that weight on, on their shoulders alone. I love that. I just like love everything you said. I could have just kept listening forever and ever. I especially love the art of possibility. Like I haven't heard somebody say that before. So that's, that's like a really nice thought. Um, so kind of with that burden, um, oftentimes, you know, when you are carrying that extra weight and have that kind of just, you know, extra motive for whatever reason, often it comes with feelings of, of burnout. What's your experience with this? And do you have any tips for listeners who might be starting to feel that or even ways to kind of avoid feeling that, that burnout, yeah. still, you know, committed to the mission and that, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So as I mentioned more recently in my career, I've started to play a role in being part of the proactive response to creating um, more diversity and inclusion within the organizations that I've worked in rather than kind of reacting to one by one scenarios. But I took a, a I made a conscious decision to play a proactive role. I don't look at it as a burden. I actually do look at it as a responsibility and in a way a privilege because I have a leadership position where I have a voice that's perhaps influential enough to make a difference in that respect. So I take on that work knowing that I consciously want to do it, but I am also very aware that for some others, it's work that's kind of expected of them. So I'm really mindful of when people participate in DEI initiatives that they're making a choice to do so. And I, I always ask people to volunteer completely independently, take a look at what work they have on their plate and make sure that they have enough time that they're able to invest and commit. Because once you start this work, when you do it, you tend to be really passionate about it. The people who put their hand up to get involved tend to have a lot of passion. And that passion is a very, very quick candle wick to burnout. So you need to give yourself time and know that you're not doing it all alone and independently. So you also have to be part of an organization that gives you the right support and structure and sponsorship from across all levels and across all diverse backgrounds as well. So you're not always putting the onus and the burden and responsibility 
on the underrepresented groups to really help in creating the solutions to the challenges that individuals may face. I think we need to be part of the conversation and use our lived experience to kind of influence and inspire or enlighten people on where there may be opportunities to close some gaps and gaps that people don't even recognize exist. So that's why I want to lend my voice. But I know that ultimately the responsibility has to be shared among other people and frankly, um, by people who aren't part of that underrepresented population, because that change has to come, come from outside as well. So I think in terms of giving people advice, it boils down to make sure that you have enough time and capacity. So look at all the work that you're doing. And if you're a leader, this is a perfect opportunity to delegate and give other people an opportunity to take take initiatives on so you can take this one on for yourself if you want to move into DEI. And then I'd also say just make sure that you're kind of very conscious of how you're spending your time because I spent a lot of time early on reading anything and everything that I could find thinking I was going to make myself an expert in this space as if it was a part-time job. It is not a part-time job. There are already experts. So if you're lucky enough to be able to have funding to hire external consultants, whether it's for quick engagements or long-term strategic initiatives, just make sure you're looking for the right experts to help and support. Do not feel like you have to be an expert yourself just because you feel passionate about a topic and you know you can, you can have an impact. Of course you will. Um, but your role in that, you got to be really conscious about how, how big you're trying to make it. I really love that because for a lot of organizations or people that are so passionate about this, it isn't their nine to five or eight to five yeah. or whatever. So time is of the essence. And if you're moving at a million miles a minute, suddenly you're going to have to take a breath. And that yeah. could like lead to feelings of feeling like, well, what have I accomplished? What am I doing? Like, yeah. so I really like that being cognizant of time. You don't have to know everything, obviously learn what you'd like, but lean on the experts to really drive that change as it's applicable to your organization. I think that's great. And, and realize that change doesn't happen overnight. It's incremental. It's iterative. I think I'm the kind of person that sets out a list of uh, goals that I want to accomplish. And I typically do have timeframes around them, but I can also recognize that sometimes I'm overly ambitious about the timeframes and I need people around me that are very much going to say, what can we accomplish in this amount of time? And, and just be a bit realistic about it because it feels like when, when you've seen lack of progress for so long, or you know that there's a possibility for quick wins, if it, if it hasn't been done in 20, 30 plus years, you're not going to do it in the next three months. But what's a reasonable time frame that you can? And what are those incremental moves that you can make that are going to get you that step forward? And yes, you want to do that as quickly as possible, but you have to bring people on that journey with you. And there's a change journey for other people um, as you start to roll out DEI programs. And I think it's easy to take for granted the amount of new information that can be coming people's way and how they have to process it. So you need to build that into to your expectations of how quickly you want to move. And um, mm -hmm. a really quick example is like just throwing out unconscious bias training really quickly to people who don't have the framework to understand what that is. That's probably actually going to slow you down. That's not moving quickly and, and meeting your objectives. You have to actually set the foundation. So take that step back as well and, and look at the, the big picture. I love that. That's really, really good advice. You got to set that foundation. So it actually has a, the impact that you'd want. <laughs> so looking back at your, when you were in law school, what advice would you give to yourself? You know, is there anything you wish you would have told your younger self or about your career, about what not to do? 
feel free to take this question in whatever direction you want. <laughs> I, I thought a lot about this, even before <laughs> you prepped me with this question. Um, if I could go back and give myself advice, I would say expect the unexpected. And as cliche as that sounds, I was the law school graduate that had a 5, 10, and 20-year plan. I knew what I wanted to do, the area of law I wanted to practice in, and then I knew I wanted to go into business because I have um, a business background as well. I did with my law degree, and nothing transpired according to that 5, 10, 20-year plan. But I'm obviously very happy in doing what I'm doing now, and the reason why I got here is because... I took those kind of twists along my career journey and I said yes to opportunities that I didn't even know existed before someone came to me and said, hey, you seem to be really good at X. Do you want to take this opportunity on? Or they put me in touch with someone and I just had a networking coffee with them and that led to a more permanent opportunity. So I would just tell myself that those twists are going to happen. And to not be surprised by them, to not focus on trying to get back to the original plan, because there was a short period of time where I did that. And then I ended up unhappy and came back to the opportunity that had come to me kind of unexpectedly. And, and that really launched my career to where it is today. So being really open and flexible, building relationships with people, because that's ultimately what matters, the connections that you make. And yes, you can do a really great job and um, feel proud of yourself for that sense of accomplishment. But it's the people who you build relationships with and who see that that potential in you that are going to help you down the line that you want to you want to make sure that you're maintaining those. So I would just say to be really grateful and thankful for those relationships, to maintain them, perhaps be a little bit better at maintaining them. I've got some work to do on that. And then at the end of the day, I would say, don't be so hard on yourself when things don't go as planned. Um, I, tend to, I tended to put a lot of pressure on myself as a young law student graduate, and I'm sure a lot of others do as well. Um, but I know that if I went back to tell my 25-year-old self not to put so much pressure on herself, she wouldn't listen. <laughs> Still have these big ambitious goals and, and be a bit disappointed when they, they didn't specifically come to light, but ultimately things do really work out. And um, not to end on a similar cliche to the one that I started with, but it's it's about focusing on what you can control, what's in your, your realm of control at the end of the day, right? And all those other factors that are outside of it, they're not worth stressing and worrying about. Just focus on what you know you can do really well and being the person who you want to be that lives by values that you really truly believe in. And, and that's enough. Wow. You're like, this is like what I needed to hear too. It's just talking to my fiance. He's like, why do you put so much pressure on yourself? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, just relax. Like it, everything will figure itself out. I'm like, I don't know how to relax. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that, that I love all, everything you said there that taking the twist and turns that, yeah, we yeah. can set a five-year, 10-year plan and we could also hold ourselves to that plan, but we could be ignoring opportunities that could really marry our strengths a little better, or give us more passion. So having that open mind and flexibility, especially in our industry where there's new opportunities emerging all the time, I think yeah. is a wonderful point. And one of the things I, I tell people, especially junior folks on my team, when they come to me and they say they want to be a manager, they want to be a director, they, they want a job title, but then I ask them, but what do you want to do? The title is one thing you can come up with your own title. <laughs> I could come up and make, I can make up a title for you, but what do you want to do every day? 
So I'd also kind of go back and say, focus on that because that's actually what's going to matter more than that title career goal or objective that you set up for yourself. So if you're, you're focused on a plan on, you can have a five-year plan, but if it's focused on learning skills or doing specific things, because it's going to build your capability and focus on things that you're really interested in, that's much more meaningful than saying, I want X title five years from now. Exactly. The skills will lend itself to whatever title you end up doing. Great. Well, Visha, this was such a lovely conversation. Thanks for joining Neil and me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And for Stella Roman, I'm Mary Rectoris. And I'm Mina Taylor. 